said, well, is that a fair price? Because it's going right through 11 miles. <laughs> and he says, there's no lots down there. He rolled out his plat and he said, that's just pasture ground. And I reached under the counter and I pulled mine out. I said, well, why don't you show just 11 miles? <laughs> and he really got upset. He says, what are you trying to pull? We'll see you in court. Uh-huh. We'll condemn it. He grabbed his papers and he didn't even put them in his briefcase. He just put them under his arm and out the door he went and said, we'll see you in court. That scared the heck out of me. And uh, so I went back in the kitchen and told my dad. I said, Dad, they're going to sue us. They're going to take our land. We, we made a mistake here. And I remember my dad reaching over and putting his hand on my shoulder. And he says, calm yourself, son. I think we're on to something here. This is the Cache Valley Real Estate Podcast. Today's guest on the show is Jack Nixon of Century 21. So Jack and his wife, Charlotte, have lived in Cache Valley for the last 55 years and raised five children. He received a bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University in marketing, business management, finance, and banking. He kept going to school. He went to school at Utah State University and got his master's degree here in business administration. And Jack now currently owns and operates Nixon and Nixon Inc., a land development and construction company, and Century 21. So he's developed over 22 subdivisions ranging in size from 5 to 154 lots, primarily here in Cache Valley. And a lot of these numbers might be outdated by this point. He's served on advisory boards for local banks, been a member of the National Association of Review Appraisers, um, also been a member of the Land Use Committee on the National Board of Realtors. He's a past president of the Logan Board of Realtors, Logan Lions Club, and Northern Utah Home Builders Association. Jack served two terms as chairman of the Utah Power and Light Consumer Advisory Board, and has been a member of the Dean Advisory Council at USU for the College of Business. On two different occasions, um, Jack served as a bishop and also a member of a state presidency in his church. And overall, he's done appraising, practiced real estate, and been a real estate broker for over 50 years. So it's quite the resume, quite the introduction to give to you. But um, I'm super glad that you've been willing to be on this show. So how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing fine, but that is a little bit too elaborate for, for me. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm really nothing really, and I don't propose to be. I've been very fortunate throughout the lot my life. But I don't know why anybody wants to listen to me. <laughs> Just quickly, what was your life like growing up? Well, I was I was born during the Depression. Uh, there's very few people left that remember <laughs> the Great Depression. Uh, I was born in 1931, just as the 29-30-31 Depression, as it's referred to, was beginning to come out of those times when people worked for $40 a month 
if you had a skill set of some kind, you might need 60 or as much as 80. Mm -hmm. I don't think there, there were very... I remember my father was the manager of J.C. Penny store in Colorado, and at the time, he was making $90 a month, and they came to him and they said, oh, we're going to cut your salary because we got 17 people here that would like to have your job, and they will... They will work for $75, and we're paying you 90 So would you like to take a cut and pay? Or you, <laughs> if you say you don't want to, then we'll just let you go and hire somebody we can hire for less. He stayed in his job, but they, they cut him to um, $74.50, I think is what it was. And he got part of that pay in what was called script. Script was a promise to pay if they made it through. Uh -huh. Kind of like stock, but no guarantee that they would ever pay any portion of it unless the company made it through. J.C. Penney made it through, and uh, he did get some, what later was turned to stock. And I can't remember exactly the amount that he got paid, but probably $15, $20 of his $75 was script. So that's, that's how bad things were. But nobody had money. Every, everyone, we bartered. We traded uh, milk and eggs for potatoes, carrots, butter. We did the barter system. Uh -huh. People would barter. Somebody that had killed a calf or something like that would trade his meat for eggs or for butter. Or we, people traded around. And there wasn't any money. In those days, but, but we were all the same. There was no money for anybody, so you didn't know you were poor because everybody was in the same situation. I got started. Um, I was one of the really lucky kids. I had a horse when I was about uh, eight years old, and we lived in a little Mexican town called Del Norte, Colorado, and just probably not over a thousand people in that little town. I'm ahead of myself. I was born in Del Norte, lived there till I was four. Then we moved to Ordway, Colorado, and that's where I got my horse when I was eight years of age. And that was on the railroad, and they used to ship melons to Denver and even to the West Coast. And uh, they had a special kind of melon called the Ordway Pinkney that had a special flavor to it that uh, people loved. But in those days, um, by train, it would take three days or so to get to the coast. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't ship ripe melons by train because they would be too ripe by the time they got to marketplace. So they would pick them just a little green a little before they were ripe. And they used to just throw away the ripe melons and the farmers would come and get it get them. They pulled their truck under this big hopper that had a, um, a catch basin for all of the ripe melons to drop down into this hopper. And I got an idea. Somehow, my dad probably suggested it to her. But I would take my horse, my little wagon, down to the melon plant, tie my horse up, and I'd crawl up into the hopper and catch these melons before they came off the 
and drop down into the hopper and grow because there were seeds and flies and juice and sticky and I mean, uh -huh. there was a mess in there. But I'd catch them, wash them off, clean them up, put them in this little wagon that I had. My dad had helped build some sides on it. And I would pull that little wagon behind my horse up and down the street of Ordway, Colorado, which was only about six streets, I guess, in the whole town, uh -huh. six or eight. And I had a bell, and I'd just ring it, and the ladies in, in their houses would hear me coming. And they, so they would come out and buy melons from me, two for a nickel. <laughs> and, um, and I did really well, because sometimes I'd make $2 a week or something like that. People that were at full-time jobs were making $40 a month, $10 a week. I was making $2 and just selling melons. <laughs> anyway, um, that was probably one of my first, that was my first um, entrepreneurial experience was doing that. And um, from there, you know, I, I did all kinds of things as a kid. We picked peas, um, thin beets. Um, everybody worked. There wasn't wasn't anyone, all my friends, uh, as soon as you get out of school, you'd go home, milk the cows, or you would go home and work in the garden or in the fields or whatever your parents uh, wanted you to do. So I've never known a time of that I didn't have an interest in making money of some kind mm -hmm. with my extra, extra time that I had. So we had a farm and as I mentioned, I had to thin the beets, and we had top beets. We would sell the beet pulp to the sugar factory, and uh, then in the winter time, we'd buy the pulp back and feed our cattle. We'd have maybe 30, 40 head of cattle. And uh, I remember riding my horse out to the farm, which was about, about four miles out of town, and um, I'd have to take a kind of a pickaxe and chop the beet pulp, which, which was wet, was fermenting from the time of the summertime when they would pile it up in big piles and it would freeze in the wintertime. But anyway, mm -hmm. we, would, we would buy our beet pulp bag that feed to the cows and, and we fed them cottonseed cake and chunks of beet pulp and they would chew on it and they're cutted, finally melted down to the point that uh, they could swallow it. Anyway, those are just memories that uh, go back. Uh, another one of my jobs was to uh, feed the pigs. We had what we called a swill barrel. And this swill barrel, everything went into it that was non-eatable from the tops of beets or the tops of carrots or potato peelings. And then it would go into the swill barrel and then we'd put the whey milk. The whey milk is with cream taken off. Mm -hmm. We had a separator that we'd turn this separator and the cream would come to the top and we'd sell the cream to the creamery and we'd get some cash out of that. The whey was just uh, milk without any cream in it and which now people buy because of skim milk. <laughs> <laughs> but in those days, um, that went into the swill barrel 
and then we put some barley in there and other non-edible foods went in there and as that sat out in the sun it got kind of rank and you could smell it from any place in the yard or any place in the neighborhood you could mm-hmm. smell the swill barrel but we'd mix that barley up with a hole a little short handled hole that was my job to keep it stirred up and the suds would come to the top and um, it really stunk putrid the way I mean, as I remembered as a kid and I remember a, a story that I developed out of that I remember one time maybe when I was probably 10 years old 11 years old I said dad how does beer taste because it sure looks good with all these bubbles on it and he looked at me and he says come with me son and so he took me out to the barnyard where our pigs were and um, over to the sway barrel mm-hmm. and he says now when you stir that barley up in there you see all those nice bubbles that come to the top and i said yeah and he says that's the way they make beer he says you take a piece of cheesecloth it's what we used to strain any particles out of the milk to clean it so that because you get manure in your milk when you're milking by hand you get hay and other things when you strain it out with cheesecloth he says if you take what comes out of the cheesecloth after it's been in the sway barrel and fermenting for a few days or weeks or whatever, that's what you drink when you drink beer. <laughs> and I thought, I I don't I have no interest in ever tasting beer. Because <laughs> all I would see is that putrid stuff that I kept stirring up for the pigs. Anyway, that's incidental. But those those interesting things still pop in my mind. I never have tasted beer, ever. Even though there's been, I've had friends that said, come on, have a beer with us, you know. Because I just saw that sweet barrel, I said, I'm not, I'm not going to pour that down me. I'm not, no way. So, anyway, from there, uh, things started to get better. I remember the first car we bought was in 1936, and we paid $600 for a brand new car. Brand new Ford, four door, I think it was the four door. The next car we bought was in 1939, and that was that was $900 mm-hmm. for a new fridge, a new Chevrolet four door sedan. In those days, the maximum speed that you could drive on the road, there's no oil roads, they were all dirt roads or gravel roads. The maximum speed was speed was 35 miles an hour and so you didn't go very fast they would, they'd last them maybe 50,000 miles and then you'd have to, to uh, put new rings in them and grind the valves down and do motor work on them and to get another 50,000 miles out anyway most of the things that I lived with and think thought that's the way life was later in 42 the war came in the Second World War came, and I was about uh, 11, 12, 13 years of age during that time. And I remember the troop trains came along the railroad track, and there'd be all these recruits going to war to fight for our country. First, it was against the European theater, the, the Germans, and then 
the Japanese after that. And um, I can remember going down to the railroad tracks. And at that time, I had a paper route. And so the train would stop and take on water and coal. And you'd see these recruits hanging out of the windows, waving at people. And people were down there with sandwiches for them to feed the, the troops going through. And, and they dropped the paper off in a bundle. And, and I would unbundle them, wrap them up, delivered them. But I remember how proud everyone was of the American flag and how patriotic because the war effort changed the way we lived. There was a munitions complex where they made ammunition in Denver. A lot of the women that lived in our little town, which was about 100 miles away, 150 miles away, would go and work in the munitions plants. And there were no cars built from 1942 to 1946. There was about four years there that no automobiles were manufactured because all the automobile plants turned into building war machines, which would be jeeps, half tracks, which were like like a tank almost. They didn't have all the armor on them, but they'd have a turn on top with a machine gun that would rotate around that the guy would stand there and that was his war piece to protect our country. Anyway, I'm just sitting here rambling because <laughs> I remember, I'm remembering back in my days, my youth was much different than today. Youth has uh, iPads and it have all types of different playthings, electronics, and so on and so forth. At any rate, as I grew up, my father was an entrepreneur, even though he was a manager of a J.C. Penny store. He used to um, always have a side business. We always had some cattle on the side or a little farm, like I mentioned, or we'd have raise onions or we'd raise beets or we'd raise peas. We, 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 always had a job we had needed to go to. We didn't have any time to really uh, just wonder what to do or to play. Everybody worked mm -hmm. in order to put food on the table, clothes on your back. The first home we bought was bought from a judge whose wife had died and um, we paid $4,000 for the, our first house and uh, this man, just when he, he, he moved from this little town of Ordway, and he left his clothes there, and he left his shoes. I remember seeing them in the house. He left uh, all his dishes. He just walked out of the house, and my dad was able to somehow or other come up with $4,000, and that's the first home we bought. And I remember that beautiful china closet that was full of beautiful cut glass, ornate glass that he bought in France or someplace. And he just walked off and left all that. So then the second home we bought, we paid 5000 for him. That was when I was 12 years old. And that was in Roosevelt, Utah. Because my father, uh, our family were LDS, but there weren't any Mormon people in Colorado. We were the only ones for 25 
mild. In fact, I was baptized in a Baptist baptismal font. We had to drive 50 miles to Pocambo to find even the Baptist church that had a, a baptismal font. So I could baptized. So those are historical records that I'm recalling. And I had friends. I was a Cub Scout, and later a Boy Scout. I had a wonderful Cub Master who was my mother. <laughs> and um, she was always had projects for us. One of the projects that I had from about the time I was turned 11, getting ready to be a Boy Scout, I had a merit badge of rattlesnakes, rattles. We had a lot of rattlesnakes where we used to run our cattle out in the prairie. And when we'd go out to brand or to dehorn the calves, whatever the case may have been, we'd always run into three or four rattlesnakes every branding season we had. And it wasn't anything for a kid my age, I was, I was nine, ten years old probably, to crawl off my horse and kill that rattlesnake, and take my lariat and beat him to death. Mm -hmm. And um, I was never afraid of them. Uh, and then we'd cut the rattles off, and we'd cut them off the head of the, the buttons. There's a, a button right at the end of the tail of a rattlesnake, and the number of buttons tells you how old they are. They get a button every year, and then the rattles would be sometimes five to ten rattles at the end of the buttons. And I had a board that I was posting all the rattles on that I got off these snakes. And friends would give me the ones they killed too. And, so, and I, I used to dip them in wax when the wax was warm and that would keep them from deteriorating. And then I'd post them on this board I had. And I wish I knew where, whatever happened to that. Because I, I had probably 20 different rattles on that. And I had some <laughs> that had as many as three buttons, so they were at least three-year-old snakes. That was um, a mirror badge I got, was a rattlesnake. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm getting off on track here. Those are the kind of things, though, that we lived through. My horse was too big for me to get up on, so I had to lead him up to a step or a bucket or something, and then get up on the bucket or the step, and then lean over the top of it and be able to get on. I got the idea one time that if I could find a lump of grass or a lump of oats or something, I could ride my horse up, let him have his range, and he'd put his head down to eat, and I could slide down his neck so I could get off without jumping off. One day I got the idea, why don't I just take him up to the watering trough and let him drink and then I can slide down. But I didn't think about going down his neck. I pushed his nose under the water and threw his head up in the air and I went hand over hand and landed about eight feet behind my board. So those are fun experiences. We then always had it. My dad's paycheck came in from the Jason Petty store. But we went into the automobile business and the farm machinery business and the tire capping business and where we put retreads on tires, uh, which they don't do much anymore. We had the Ford uh, 
tractor agency, which was the first three-point hookup on a on a tractor. Before that, it was all done by horses. We were one time, when I was about 16, 17 years old, I remember my dad said, we were out in front of our automobile dealership. We at that time had the Lincoln and Mercury Automobile Agency, as well as GMC Truck Agency. And I remember there was about 60 automobiles there. They had about six inches of snow on them. It was in January. And the snow would just sit there and so cold that didn't melt off. But I remember my dad saying, every one of these vehicles here are going down a dollar a day. And he says, we need to get into something that we can sell that is appreciating instead of going down in value, depreciating. I didn't know what depreciate meant. I didn't know what appreciate meant. But he says they need to be going up at night while we're asleep instead of going down. So we didn't know what that was. <laughs> but um, an opportunity came for us to buy a restaurant and a motel up Logan Canyon. It's still here, Zanabee Lodge, which is uh, closed now at the mouth of the, the canyon. But hmm. at that time, we turned it into a thriving motel. We had 21-unit motel, and we had a restaurant there. And we turned that into a paying business. And how we got into that is we traded our garage and service station, our automobile dealership, everything. We traded our capping, all we had in a lump sum for the lodge here because the person that owned the lodge was a man by the name of Nix, and he was out of Texas. And he wanted to sell the lodge, but he couldn't sell it for cash, so he took our automobile dealership and our tire cap and all the garage and service station and everything we had because he could sell the cars off and the pickup trucks off in pieces and sell the tires and he gave us the lodge at a fifty thousand dollar mortgage that we still owed him but we got the lodge 21 unit motel and um we had had some experience doing that because my aunts and uncles owned a place called Jacob Lake, Arizona, which is down on the north rim of Grand Canyon. And every summer, I used to go down there from the time I was 12 till about 18, and I ran the service station down there. And we had a restaurant, and we had cabins, a few cabins. And my dad and mom had worked there when they were first married in about 1927. So they knew the restaurant business. And, but there's no road across the Grand Canyon. So when they get to the Grand Canyon, they had to turn around and come back past Jacob Lake. So if we treated them good going in and bought them a, they liked their sandwiches or whatever we were able to sell them. We sold gas, gasoline there by the gallon, oil, and a few things like that. Treat them good going in, they usually stop going back out. So anyway, we knew the restaurant business somewhat, so we bought the Zanavu Lodge and traded our other businesses for it, and we made it successful. My mother used to iron the tablecloths and wash them, and my sister was a waitress, and I washed dishes back in the kitchen, and eventually learned to be a cook. And anyway. That leads me to the real estate business now. 
I had a lot of rhetoric here. We haven't got through with this today. <laughs> um, <clears throat> while we owned Zanavu Lodge, we bought it in 1959. Shortly thereafter, UDOT, Utah Department of Transportation, came to us and said, we want to widen the road to Bear Lake, and we need to buy a little piece of land off of you because we own 11 acres there, and they needed about two and a half acres to widen the road of our property that went in front of the lodge. So um, we said, yeah, that sounds good. If you build a new road up here, it would give us more traffic. And we said we would be happy to sell them some land. But they said, well, how much do you want for your land? We said, well, how do we know? We don't know. <laughs> but how much were you willing to pay? And the UDOT fellow says, well, we'll have it appraised, and we'll pay you whatever the appraisal is. I didn't know what an appraisal was, but I, I kind of got the idea. They came to us and says, looks like we'll give you $11,000 for two and a half acres of your ground. $11,000 went a long ways towards paying off this $50,000 note we had, so it sounded pretty good to us. However, we didn't really know how they arrived at that figure. And one day, Cash County uh, surveyor came up. He used to come up often and uh, get a drink and eat Xanacones. We had skulls at that time. We called Xanacones. And I became friends with him, and I, his name was Erwin Moser. And one day he's there. I says, Erwin, do you know that you're going to put a new road through here? And he says, yeah, I know about it. And I says, how do you know when you're getting a fair price for your land? And he says, well, they'll just appraise it, and then they'll compare it to other properties and do an appraisal on it, and they'll pay you whatever the appraisal value is. And I said, well, this piece of property is private property inside of the forest, forest ground all around it. Where do you find any comparable properties that sell? How could they compare it? He says, well, every piece of property is different than the adjacent one. He said, now, he said, some properties worth more. If you have a piece of farmland, that's worth so much. But if you have a subdivision and you can build houses on it, that's worth more because it has a higher use. Or if it's commercial land, oftentimes that's even worth more than subdivision. And I, I didn't even know what a subdivision was. But when he left, I went and told my dad, who was back in the kitchen, I said, Dad, Erwin Moser, the county surveyor, says, if we had a subdivision, it would be worth more than just our horse pasture that they want to come through. My dad said, why did he get a subdivision? I said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, next time he's up, you're asking. Uh -huh. So when Erwin came up again a week later or so, I said, how do you... How do you get a subdivision? And he told me how. He said, it's pretty simple. You just draw your land out with lots on it, and go down to the courthouse and record it. When he left, I went and told my dad. My dad said, oh, well, how much does it cost to get a subdivision? <laughs> <laughs> so when he came back up, I said, Erwin, uh, are you so you could maybe make a subdivision out of this land that uh, they're going to buy? 
He said, well, you know, I can, I can help you. And I said, well, how much would that cost? He said, oh, probably $175. So um, I told my dad, and my dad says, time to do it. So next time, I, Irwin drew in 11 lots there and recorded it, brought us the plat, paid him. Next time, the uh, UDOT guy came in and he says, well, we want to get this deal closed now. He says, we'd like to close it by a week from Thursday, if we can. And I said, well, now, how much did we decide that you were going to pay us? And he says, well, we talked about $11,000. And uh, I said, well, is that a fair price? Because it's going right through 11 lots. <laughs> and he says, there's no lots down there. He rolled out his plat and he said, that's just pasture ground. And I reached under the counter and I pulled mine out. I said, well, why don't you get 11 lots? And he really got upset. He says, what are you trying to pull? We'll see you in court. Uh -huh. We'll condemn it. He grabbed his papers and he didn't even put them in his briefcase. He just put them under his arm and out the door he went and said, we'll see you in court. That scared the heck out of me. And uh, so I went back to the kitchen and told my dad. I said, Dad, they're going to sue us. They're going to take our land. We, we made a mistake here. And I remember my dad reaching over and putting his hand on my shoulder. And he says, calm yourself, son. I think we're on to something here. Friday night, we had a group of people that always came up and ate steaks at our place. And they bring their, their wives, and it was about six couples. These ended up being the, the notables in the valley. Joe Jacobson, who was a home builder. Um, LeGrand Johnson, who was a road builder. Vern uh, Cook, who had the bus service his wife. And then there was a guy by the name of Goldie Butters. And he was the president of the Chamber of Commerce. And he was uh, a big guy around town. And they came up and we always reserved a table for them because they came every Friday night. Well, they came, came in and they went over to sit down at their table. But Goldie saw me standing over the cash register. He looked at me and he came right straight for me. He said, Nixon, we're going to close you down because you're asking too much. You're going to you're stopping the road from being wide and going to Bear Lake. And I didn't even know he knew anything about it. But everybody could hear him in the restaurant because he had a big. He couldn't whisper, and everybody was wondering what Goldie was chewing me out about. And I was feeling. I said, No, no, Goldie. We want the road. We we want to be fair. We want to cooperate. We don't. And he says. I'm the president of the Chamber of Commerce, and he says, I'm in touch with every business in the valley. You'll wish you hadn't tried to stop this road. And I said, you don't understand that isn't true. We, we don't want to stop the road. We want the road. And he says, but you're asking too much for your land. I found out later that he was on the road commission. The Utah Road Commission was the representative up here. So they jumped back and reported in their meeting that Nixon's now at 11 lots there. Anyway, we ended up getting 33000 Wow! for the land instead of eleven. And then I thought, you know what? There's a better way of making a living than mopping floors, washing dishes, making beds. And that's when I started thinking about real estate. 
year or so later, we sold Xanadu. Didn't get any money out of it. We got some second trust deeds on California houses. So I and my dad both then looked into getting our real estate licenses and learning more about it. And we did. And now starts a new era. Uh, we sell the restaurant, the motel, and go into the real estate business. And it's been a wonderful life because changing the use of a property like we did, we changed that from a pasture to a subdivision, enhanced the building value of that land 300%. Two ways you make money in real estate. You make money through the changing of the use, and you make money through appreciation. The first house I ever bought was in Roosevelt for $5,600. Today, that same little house, which is uh, 50, 60 years later, would sell for $350,000. From $5,600 to $350,000 is a big change. Now, there's also 60 years in yeah. between. But the fact that the value of real estate will keep coming up because our Heavenly Father up in heaven isn't making any more land, but he's making more children that are coming to the earth. And there's more demand for a fixed entity. And anytime that you have higher demand for something that isn't expanding, the value of it goes up. So anyway... When that finally caught on in my head, it took a year or two to really start to realize it and so on and so forth, I decided I want to get as much real estate as I can and start to write it up. And even better, if I can have someone rent that real estate and pay the interest that I'm paying on the loans that I borrow, if someone else is paying for it, all I got to do is get enough money to get the down payment. And then as inflation comes along, the dollar becomes worth less, but I'm paying off that loan with cheaper dollars because I'm making more dollars as time goes on. I get more dollars for the same service. Rent continues to go up instead of getting $60 rent, which I rented a lot of apartments for 60. Uh-huh. I today get $2,000. <laughs> That's the other way you make money. It's through appreciation and changing the use. So I've been doing that for quite a while. And uh, it, it works. Now, you can get overloaded. You're going to have real estate people listen to this. They have, you have to be awful careful that you don't tip over. Mm-hmm. Because if you have a depression come along or you have something happen that people can't pay that rent, you've got to drop the rent down if you're going to keep people in. Mm-hmm. Because they'll go to where they get the best deal. So if you get too many loans and too much debt on it, and you can't generate the income off of it, or you're trying to live out of that rental income, it doesn't work. You've got to have other income coming in to sustain your livelihood and let 
to rent buy that property for you. But if you're willing to be patient, my $5,600 house that I bought in 1970, today is 350 million. See what that does for you if you have 10 of those or two of them even. So, You have to be careful that you don't get overburdened or you're not spending that money on things that isn't paying that debt off. You want to make sure that you don't do that and tip over. And it's a real challenge. It's a real um, uh, dangerous uh, to get yourself where you're starting to get money coming in and thinking, well, I want to get a new car, or we'd like to take a trip to Europe, or and take that money and and be too thin and end up having your foreclosure on you if you if you can't fill that rental gap. So a lot of people think I'm going to get rich that way, which they can do. But you have to be very careful and very cautious and that you don't get uh, spending your money on things that don't bring money in. If you have income coming in off of what you buy, then that's that's great. If you don't have income, then you better have something you can change the use of it so it has a higher value and you're still making money, but you've got to service that debt. So for you real estate people, it isn't all easy. And there's, yeah. there's depressions that come along. There's times that uh, people can't pay that kind of rent or you can't keep raising it. There's, there's, our economy keeps changing. But overall, it goes up in value. So if you can write it out long enough, you can make, you can, you can make a lot of money. What have been some of the biggest obstacles you've had to overcome in real estate? High interest. 1980, we just about tipped over. We had some good years in the 70s and maybe 60s. Made some money. We were buying land, dividing it up, breaking it into lots, partnering up with builders that would come and build a home on it, and we'd sell the home to somebody and we'd split the profit. In October of 1980, a man by the name of Paul Volker was the head of the Federal Reserve. We had a man by the name of Billy Carter, that was the president of the United States. And he was letting inflation run wild. It was running about 10% a year, like it is today. We're going up faster than that now, so we're in dangerous territory. But So then Paul Volcker was given the charge of, of stopping this inflation, runaway inflation. So he went in and he raised the discount rate that's the rate that banks can borrow from banks, the very bottom rate, prime rate. He raised that five points. Wow. It was it was about six and a half percent in 1980, October, as I remember. Paul Walker went to bed on a Thursday night, woke up Friday morning, and raised the discount rate five points. So it took it from about six and a half about 11 and a half. Within the next 90 days, he raised it another 
three point and then another four point mm -hmm. and the the prime rate was getting up to seventeen. Wow. It finally got up to twenty one and a half percent. My my debt I need to talk about debt. I'm gonna tell you the rest of the story about that. There's one thing I learned in college, and I only remember reading one thing out of all my <laughs> 16 years of college. Oh, yeah. And that's a story that was told to me by a professor at BYU. And he, <clears throat> he said, when you're dealing with banks, J.C. Penney and other wealthy people say it's a good idea to put your eggs all in one basket and then watch the basket. Because I think differently. I think you ought to be more like the monkey when you're borrowing money. He says, a monkey up in the tree has a hand around one branch, another hand around another branch. He's got his tail around the branch. He's got each foot around two more branches. Then he says, you get one in your teeth. <laughs> and when the branches begin to break, you got something to hold you up. Never forget that story. I remembered it and I started building my credit when I started getting into real estate mm -hmm. by having numerous lenders. Started out by borrowing $500 and I didn't spend that $500. I made a couple payments on time and then went in and paid it off with the $500 I borrowed. Next time I went in, I borrowed a thousand dollars, and I did the same thing. And I went, made two or three payments on it, paid it off. Next time I borrowed fifteen hundred dollars, and I would do this at at various lending institutions until I had some very strong credit lines that I could borrow. And I don't, I don't want to tell you the numbers, but I, I got clear up, and I could borrow a lot of money because I always paid off on time. In those days, they didn't take land or houses as collateral very much. They went on your credit history. Does okay. he pay or doesn't he pay? They didn't want to foreclose on a farm. They didn't know how to run a farm. They didn't want to foreclose on a car or a truck. Or they just wanted you to pay, that's all, because they were in the money-making business. They weren't in the, in the selling business of whatever maybe the collateral that you nowadays have left. So back to the Paul Volcker days, interest rate got clear up in the 20, like we were paying 21 and a half percent, 22 and a half percent because the basic rate was 21 and a half prime rate. So I owed about $3 million at that time. Mm -hmm. that they we're gonna stop this inflation by raising interest, and nobody, the business just stopped because people didn't have the money to pay higher rates of interest, they didn't have the income. We owe about, about $3 million is what we owe in subdivisions. I had lots of sewer and water and roads and streets, and I couldn't sell lots. Just prior to that, in the late 70s, I was selling lots for about $18,000 a lot. When rates went clear on up, 22 and a half percent why I couldn't sell any lots. 
yet I owed three million dollars, and the interest rates on those kept going up, and we had no income. Mm-hmm. You couldn't generate enough income to just service the interest. My friend at BYU had told me the story about the monkey, and I had numerous sources. I had about six or seven different lending institutions that would lend me money because I built my payback with their money so I could borrow. But it isn't long before they put a cap on how much they're going to lend you, even though you're paying it back, because I would borrow from this bank and pay this bank. Uh-huh. And then when the time came to pay this one back, I borrowed from this bank over here, paid this one. Uh-huh. And we got into something that is now illegal. It was called kiting. I would borrow from one bank to pay another and so on and rotate the money around like that. Yeah. You still got to keep adding to it because the rate's going up and that money's going for interest. So you got to be selling some stuff and you got to do whatever you can to be able to service those. It, it got to a point, though, where... Instead of owing three million, I owed four million seven hundred thousand dollars. Wow! And I didn't have anything I could really i I could sell some logs, and I financed them at six percent, but I'm paying twenty two and a half percent for money, and I'm getting six percent. But at least I I can sell some product to people that can afford six percent, and so I started liquidating my inventory by carrying my own rolls. That helped for a while, but pretty quick you start running out of product. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it took us 10 years to get out. We finally did get out, and I finally traded them on a lot of property, a lot of building lots, some houses that I had owned that I paid maybe 25000 or $5,000 down or but they had gone up a little bit by And I was just scrambling and selling anything I could sell just to service my debt. Because if you once default on your debt, you're done in business. People, that word goes just like wildfire. And you say, well, so-and-so is not, he can't pay, he's out of money. You're not going to get your money back, so don't lend him. Mm-hmm. So anyway, all my, most all my friends went under. I, I was just one of the very few lucky ones that made it through. And I'm still today, 43 years later, I'm still paying on one of those debts, $1,000 a month. You're kidding me. Yeah. Today, wow. I haven't got it paid off yet. <laughs> I still owe about, uh, I think I probably owe about 40 years on it, $1,000 a month. Wow. And that's somebody that lent me some personal money to help me through that time. And he didn't want to be paid off. He he just wants a thousand dollars a month until he dies, <laughs> and that's great to me. And he's not charging any interest. Cool. I'm just paying back what I owe him. Uh huh. And I'm in position today. I could pay him off if he'd take it, but he says, "No, I like that thousand <laughs> So I was lucky to get somebody like that. But we've got all our debts paid off finally, and we've got. Good credit. We saved our, our credit rating, and we got a lot of help from heaven. So is that a good story? That's an awesome story. I love <laughs> it. 
All right, what else do you want to know? I'm just rambling here. Oh, no. In your life, how would you define success? And that can be in business or your personal life. Yeah, I, I, what you say is right. There's, there's lots of definitions for success. And mm -hmm. usually people in business figure I'm successful if I am making a profit on what I'm doing. I can buy what I want to buy and go where I want to go and eat what I want to eat and drive what I want to drive. That's success in a lot of people's minds. True success is happiness, in my opinion. Yeah, so happiness can come from having some excess money because you can do some things for other people that you normally would not be able to do. I think happiness comes from sharing and helping other people. Now that's where I get my satisfaction. I don't go out on the golf course and chase a white ball around. I, 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 that's a waste of time to me, but it is success to a lot of people that can go do that and not uh, have to go back to work. There's all kinds of successes. Success, though, in my mind, is genuine happiness and not having guilt complexes or not carrying burdens or anxieties against somebody that owes you money and can't pay that debt. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what is more beneficial than feeling of fulfillment and happiness and having some money can help that, but being rich does not bring happiness. It's got its own set of problems, and they're multiple, mm -hmm. starting with the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but I, I think having your children and your family love you, having them respect you, having the integrity that people speak favorably about the way you deal with people and so on, that's success. So I want to be very respectful of your time. You've already been very generous with your time. So you can give just real quick, short answers to these um, last few questions. But what's motivated you to serve on all these boards and committees that you've been on? Probably because somebody asked me to do it. I didn't, you said, okay. didn't know how to say no. Good. Okay. That's a great answer. Okay. Gotcha. Um, what do you see happening in Cash Valley Real Estate in the next five years? Well, of course, it depends a lot on, on the economy and where we're going. We're, we're in uncharted territories now mm -hmm. with inflation going like it did in the 30s. Or, I mean, in the 80s, we could get ourselves in trouble. We're seeing a lot of homeless people who can't, they can't even pay rent because the rent's going so high because there's so much demand and there's a scarcity. I think, though, that that fundamental equation of our Father in Heaven not creating any more land, and yet He's creating more demand for it, is going to continue to force the real estate market to continue to appreciate. So I say to those that are wanting to get into it, get in, get as much as you can handle without overburdening yourself and running the risk of failing and losing it all, prudently bite off a little bigger chunk 
that comes from saving. You, you've got to have money to get into real estate. Now, the slickest way to get in is to buy a home and move into it because you can get a little lower rate of interest if you're living in it. And I like to see my grandkids, I'm helping them at least get a condo to start with. And as the value of that condo goes up, we bought three of them last year for my grandson, grandkids, mm -hmm. two of my grandkids. The first one we bought for 240000 The next two we bought six months later, and we paid 295000 or we paid 55000 more for it in six months. Today, all three of those will sell for close to 400000 Look at the money that those kids have made. The girl that got the 240000 one mm -hmm. today could sell hers for four hundred. That's $160,000 that she made in appreciation in a little over a year, year and a half. So that's real money. I don't know that it will continue to go that rapidly, but it's going, in all my lifetime that I remember real estate, I never know of a year that it depreciated. There were some years that it kind of leveled off and maybe tipped down a little bit. But it always comes roaring back. And for years, we were getting 5% increase. Last year, we got 24%. It's huge. If you had 25 or 30 houses, yeah. Well, how can people get in contact with you if they want to reach out? <laughs> Just walk in the door. I'm usually here. Okay. Well, thanks again so much for your time. I appreciate it so much. All right, Ryan. It's been fun talking to you.